everyone, and welcome to another episode of At War, a podcast by the Conflict Law Center. Today we have with us Zainab Najib. Zainab is currently doing her PhD in anthropology from Rutgers University. She has done a master's in gender and development from the London School of Economics, and she also teaches a history of feminist movements in Pakistan at LAMS. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. I'm very excited for this conversation. <laughs> so today we're going to be talking about displacement in Fata. Um, and I know that that is the topic that you're currently doing for your PhD from a gendered perspective. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wanted to start from your PhD research, but if you could just locate your research in the Fata region, kind of like explaining to us the history of the Fata region mm-hmm. um, and, you know, going back in time a little and then we can move on from there. Yeah, no, of course. So as we all know, Fata has currently been merged with uh, the province of KP uh, recently in 2018. And my research is basically inspired by growing women's movements and growing women's political participation and presence in public spaces, especially after the displacement that was caused by Operation Zarbe Az. Mm. And that operation was obviously in response to eradicating all militant factions that have been harboring in erstwhile Fata and have been sort of associated with the region as well, quite unanimously and internationally as well. So what I'm trying to see is that how social disruptions, events of social disruptions like forced migration and displacement that is usually caused by your own state and government, how can they actually lead to uh, disrupting the social order and especially the gender order in presumably very conservative societies. Mm. So as we know, and actually many of us don't know, before the merger, FATA has really been uh, an extrajudicial category. And as I'm sure you would have a better understanding of this it has been a part of the constitution but sort of like an appendage where right. the frontier crimes regulation of 1901 that was obviously implemented by the british colonizers and the imperialists uh, when we were all part of united india under the crown uh, that law was there and has still been very much impacting the policies in that particular region where obviously you have a civil servant who would go in as a political agent, mm. same traditions, and have a good relationship with the Jirga leaders. And the Jirga system in itself is very much uh, sustainable there. So kind of actually seeing the colonial history of marginalizing and creating this buffer to the buffer zone that FATA and NWFP obviously now named as KP, Uh, was used by the British Empire to ward off any interventions from USSR or United Russia at that point of time as well. So, uh, interestingly, Punjab and NWFP, and I will say NWFP because at that point of time it was that. So, they were seen as one province. And actually, in 1899, Lord Curzon decided that he wants to split the two provinces because of this idea that the Pashtun race is barbaric, Mm. are warmongers, are already divided into natural tribes. So it would be best for them to be marginalized to this peripheral area, acting as a buffer to the buffer zone to ensure the security and the safety of the British Empire from any external invasions. Mm. And obviously the volatility of the Afghan uh, Afghan subcontinent border as well. So that is how it actually came into being. And interestingly, even before the 1901 FCR, before that we had uh, the Criminal Tribes Act in 1871, which uh, the British actually sort of implemented to criminalize most nomadic tribes Mm -hmm. and criminalize the transgender community as well. And kind of creating categories of legal subjects that are seen as nuisance 
that are seen as delinquent and deviant and legal subjects that can be controlled for like a harmonious empire as well. So the Criminal Tribes Act kind of, you know, laid out a platform for the FCR to flourish in erstwhile Fatah as well. And the Criminal Tribes Act, what it did was actually um, criminalize and uh, sort of make it illegal to be nomadic. And as we know, South Asia, especially, and even a lot of instances in Muslim history, mm -hmm. in Islamic history, we sort of see migration as almost sacrosanct yeah. migration. I mean, if you kind of go to the Prophet's time mm -hmm. or even how people started coming together during the Khilafat movement, mm -hmm. that it is actually a sacred decision to decide that if you're not prosperous or happy in a particular area, you can migrate to better, greener pastures because, you know, God has made the entire world and you have access to it. But obviously, as we read and study Western enlightenment and that yeah. rationale, we see that being nomadic and migrating constantly is actually not a neutral thing or a good mm -hmm. thing. It's actually a bad thing. It's a sign of weakness. Mm -hmm. That is, uh, it's a weakness of governance. It's a weakness of having control over one's land. And obviously now, it's very funny how we kind of see uh, America's or UK's or France's uh, attitude towards immigrants coming in and yeah. seeing it a sign of weakness or disease even. And that is something that we have sort of also understood or uh, you know, co-opted by our colonized history as well, that now we see migrating, especially within the country, as a sign of weakness as well. Mm -hmm. And we talk of it as a nuisance as well. So there are a lot of different uh, legalized ways in which FATA has been marginalized. Mm -hmm. And obviously, as a lawyer, you would understand that uh, traditions and culture, I mean, as an anthropologist, I know culture is something that should be seen as flexible, something that can constantly change and modify and grow unto its own self. But once we legalize culture or give it a, give it a very legislative vernacular, mm. like the FCR did, where it actually brought in cultural norms for Pashtun Wali, yeah. which is actually a code of conduct of the Pashtuns across the board, mm. uh, and legalizing those things, then obviously it also makes certain acts punishable. And it actually adds or injects a certain sense of clinical legality and intensity to it that cultural norms don't usually have or can have the capacity of growing and changing and adapting to changing times as well. Because now they're part of a legal document that is running an entire region, now those things are seen akin to Islamic law, akin to right. Pashtun law, which is not the case because they're actually been perpetuated to control the tribal area mm -hmm. as part of a British colony at that point of time. And unfortunately, even when Pakistan was made independent, we sort of retained uh, FCR, we did make some modifications, especially in 2011, 2008, 2006. There have always been committee constantly working on them, but nothing concrete happened till 2018 when the merger finally, surprisingly, slightly, mm. hurriedly passed as well. Yeah, there are so many interesting things to unpack there. And it's um, and th I think this is why anthropology is probably such an interesting subject whenever you, you start to look into it. For me, it's it's very interesting when I've done some work on Fata, I've done it from an international perspective, mm -hmm. so I'm not very familiar with the domestic law. Mm -hmm. But when I did look into the FCR, I was like, how is this able to continue until 2018 that we had a 1901 law mm -hmm. which kind of legitimized, you know, notions of collective punishment, this jirga system, and exactly like you said, this code of culture, mm. which, I mean, culture is never that homogenous that you yeah. can, you know, have it in a law and have mm. it apply to everyone. And especially when we're going to look at this in a gendered perspective, mm -hmm. uh, it becomes so much more fraught. And also that the issue of Fata has always been 
in um, the kind of bullet point agenda list mm. of Pakistan throughout. Mm. And it took us until 2018 until we could get this merger. And yeah. now it's again in the news because the TTP is saying this is their, um, you know, this is the thing that they mm. want, the demerging of um Fata with KP, yeah. that is the point that they're not willing to negotiate on mm. when we come to a ceasefire. Mm. Um, and and it just, it causes so much consternation that the state, which has the monopoly on law, mm. on order, on maintaining, you know, peace and on violence, mm. can also not be held to apply into this territory. Mm. Um, and I kind of now want to go into the gendered perspective of it. Because sure. what I found really interesting is that I think maybe we both agree on this a little bit. The cultural relativism should mm-hmm. be there. And I found it when I was Googling women in Fata, yeah. when I was reading papers on women in Fata, it was like voiceless, marginalized. Yeah. And I know that your research kind of wants to go beyond that. Where mm. you're like, no, actually, let's not, you know, invisibilize mm. these women mm. unnecessarily. They have their own views. They have their own opinions. Yeah. And what, who does that serve to, mm. you know, act like they don't? Mm. Um, so, yeah, could you talk to us a little bit yeah, about that? No, of course. Um, <clears throat> I think the biggest anecdote or the best example that I usually like to give is uh, Laura Bush, the then first lady coming in on radio and saying that America is going into Afghanistan to save Afghan women. Yeah. And that kind of narrative, obviously, like, to bring some theory in Gayatri Spivak also saying, you know, white men coming in to save brown women from brown yes. men. And this idea that you have to rely on uh, the free world, the mm. West per se, the global North to bring in and also kind of rescue us. There's actually an amazing article, which is also slightly relevant. I've forgotten the name, but it's uh, actually, no, I remember it. It's called No Angry Women at the UN, mm. where once two Iraqi activists, women, were invited to United Nations head office in New York to give a speech and to thank all of the seniors for their efforts in Iraq. Yeah. And, the, and they were given a script as well that, oh, you know, just read it out. Mm. But those women obviously dissented and said that we actually want to question America's rule and uh, Amer- America's role in the war on Iraq and this right, entire nice. propaganda that was set. And obviously it created a lot of um, animosity and awkwardness mm. with the senior officials as well. And I just think that is such a brilliant piece of writing because yeah. it brings in different perspectives of um, not just global leaders, mm. but also people who live through these uh, incidents as yes. well and these wars yeah. and this, these acts of displacement as well. It's also who are you celebrating and who yeah. aren't you? Yeah. And I think that that's a question I always raise mm. with regards to Malala. It's like, mm. why do we know who Malala is, who was mm. saved by the white man from these horrible brown mm. men? We don't, I don't personally know a single name of a drone strike mm. victim, mm. you know? And there's been a whole push to publicize their names, but at the same time, you don't have that. That narrative is not sticking. Mm. Yeah. And even when we look at it in the context of Syria, why are these mm. Kurdish Peshmerga forces, mm. you know, in the news, why are they shown as being like these very glamorous like yeah. fighters for freedom? Yeah. And it's like, you probably have those in a lot of other armed groups, yeah. but you don't want to see them because they, they don't fit into mm. what, you know, the women empowerment model that you want to yeah. want to push. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think Gal Gadot is a very good example of that yes. as well. The glamorous yeah. soldier who, yeah. like, who looks beautiful and then is also very nationalistic as well. Yeah. And so, kills Palestinian civilians. And kills Palestinian <laughs> civilians and yeah. celebrates it and yes. says that it's yeah. a national duty to do so. So I think those points are very important, but that is why we have to understand that we have moved beyond white feminism. Mm. We have moved beyond one uh, one Western standardization of feminism that we can just copy based on all spectrums and all spheres as well. That is actually quite lazy to me, especially. So 
And I feel like also that is why I actually started teaching my course, which you mentioned as well, a brief history of feminist movements in Pakistan, because we we feel like we don't have a history of feminist activism of, or movements or actually on ground work, but we do mm. because we're constantly looking at the West for how exactly did we start matching up to them. And also this whole, um, it's so easy to disqualify or delegitimize any feminist rhetoric or political debate in Pakistan by calling it Western or yeah. foreign or any sort of conspiracy of sorts. Mm. So similarly here as well, we see that uh, it's interesting because even though I've mentioned white feminism, we also have multiple feminisms within Pakistan as well. So yeah. urban feminism is going to be very different from rural feminism. And this idea of agency, having agency and being independent in erstwhile Fata is obviously going to look very different from what you and I experience in Lahore. Yeah. So you cannot yeah. bring them together and you cannot standardize them into mm. one module. That would be quite unfair. Yeah. So especially with this as well. So uh, coming back to displacement and migration, there is also this anthropological concept called afterlives. So, you know, when an incidence of war happens or displacement happens or a military operation happens, we sort of focus on that only. And Veena Das has actually worked on that as well, especially after um, the direct attacking of Sikh community in India in 84. So this kind of idea is that it is actually mostly women who are living the afterlives of war mm. and of any sort of mayhem that has happened because they are the ones who are left behind the most. Especially in this case when Operations Arbeaz was launched and many men already uh, firstly were working in Gulf countries or other countries and they were supporting their families through remittances and this mm. is like prosperous households. And then you have many men who actually crossed the border and went to Afghanistan. And then obviously there are many men who were killed because they occupy public spaces more. So it's mostly, so a generic household after displacement turned into elderly women and children. Right. And obviously it's the woman who has to take care of the elderly mm. and the children as well. And according to Rukshanda Nazar's report, which is actually quite a comprehensive report, and she is now the ombudsperson in Peshawar on uh, gender advocacy and rights, uh, she actually managed to, from very preliminary research, managed to gather that there has been a 21% increase in, in feminized households where the woman is responsible oh, wow. and the primary breadwinner mm. in the house. Mm. So you can imagine that for us working or having an economic life, even in urban centers, it is so much, you know, it has to be negotiated, it has to be bargained through different metrics. So you can just imagine that people who haven't really uh, been working in the conventional sense are now yeah. responsible for their households as well. And this is also... Um, and gain that power. And gain that, that household, power as right? well. Yeah. But see, that's the thing. I feel like you also have to question how, while it might be powerful from the outside, not having a choice to be resilient and yes, not making right. that choice yeah, that's right. uh, is also something that I don't think anyone would want to bear on mm. their own. But then again, it also creates a certain level of consciousness where you do feel like, oh, actually, I can do this. So how... Have I not been doing this previously? Mm. And how can I continue to do so? Because yeah. uh, according to the military, almost 89 or 90% of the families have been re repatriated. Yeah. Except yeah. for those who have decided to stay in cities where we had the camp communities, which were predominantly Diyai Khan, Banu and Peshawar. Mm. And these are obviously much more urban, much more systematic, much more uh, metropolitan comparatively to the rural areas in Waziristan and erstwhile Fata from which this exodus actually happened. Mm. So living in those camps, living together, also 
being able to talk to each other about these experiences. So I think that this should not be trivialized as well. And yeah. also sort of understand that how our own policies of seeing women as constantly helpless, mm. especially in times of crises, really needs to change because it is mostly the women who are dealing with the said crisis. Yeah, it, it does make me wonder about yeah. gendered beyond things mm. because I'm like, I wonder how far we've taken this. Mm -hmm. So especially because I look at it in terms of armed conflict, which is the kind of work that I do. Yeah. And I've not really looked at it that much in post-conflict settings, but especially there's a kind of NGO, UN-driven push to look mm. at everything from a gendered perspective, disaggregated data on everything. We mm. want to look at the impact on women and girls, the impact on women and girls. Mm. And it's like, okay, but armed conflict affects men a hell of a lot. Mm. I mean, <laughs> with in terms of how women are affected by an armed conflict, men who are actually fighting and who actually die yeah. as a result of armed conflict, I don't really know if you can compare mm. the two. And sometimes focusing on this uh, has, I think, led to, you know, us not focusing on that. And those mm. women themselves are the ones who, and we see this in terms of the Me Too movement mm. in the US when it was the African-American women who were like, yeah. we know you're going to come for our men. That's why we're not mm. in favor of this. And mm. they're actually the ones who are advocating for their rights and their due process rights more than anyone yeah. else. Yeah. And so... And now you see the UN kind of backtracking and being like, oh, when we're talking about gender perspective, we're including women and we're including men. Mm -hmm. Like, so you're just talking about the impact on people. Yeah, <laughs> really, yeah. Which is kind of the focus that we did want to have. Yeah. But at the same time, it does in some way mm. bring out some really interesting aspects. Like yeah. even when I was reading about what happened to displaced women mm. after, during, like after Fata and how mm. actually... In some ways, it has been quite good for them yeah. because, you know, they got out of a joint family system. Mm. They formed like a smaller family unit. Mm. Um, they became more economically active. They had like uh, the peer pressure on the men and the women was weakened. And so mm. they were able to do more things. They would mm. have greater autonomy, more freedom. Yeah. And so in a lot of ways, it actually helped them to, you know, be displaced and even moving mm. back. Mm. And you look at it in the sense of ID cards. Mm. So actually, these people were kind of invisible according to the state because they never possessed an ID yeah. card. Yeah. And being displaced, being in these refugee camps means that they're forced to have an mm. ID card. Mm. So I kind of I kind of wonder about the value we place on a gender mm. perspective. Mm. And I wonder whether it's very overblown. Yeah, I think that's a very good question, actually, because we obviously understand that war is an objectively bad thing for yeah. everyone who's suffering yeah. from it. And especially there's this idea that children and women suffer the most because they're seen as defenseless or they're seen as uh, people who cannot defend themselves. But also interestingly, I think like I said, it's the afterlife part that is more right. important yeah. because like you said, mostly men who are fighting an armed conflict or who have more mobility uh, they, the, you know, their lives end with that. Mm. But it is the women who have to do the everydayness of living through conflict yeah. and then post-conflict as well. And I think the best example of this is uh, this recent increase in Bush, Bush uh, sorry, in Baloch feminist activists who are coming in and they're talking yeah. about their fathers and brothers and sons mm. being disappeared. Uh, by the state right, yeah. and now they're the ones who have to come to the you know come on the streets and show the pictures mm. and this happens in Kashmir as well like I mm. think the biggest feminist organization there or activist organization is the mothers of the sons who have yeah. been killed in conflicts because yeah. they're the ones who are alive they're the ones who have to ensure that the household is running other children are not dying the elders are alive so the I think that is why Anthropology and sociology kind of gives you that nuance as well, that it is actually the afterlife, the act of 
this the act of bravery to go on each mm. day knowing what has happened and while we see that men are actually right in the action of it women are the ones who are actually living on mm. and that is something that we have a lot of historical examples for as well even i mean just because it's so recent even when we talk about ashura and karbala that is exactly what happened then yeah. as well it was the women who had to share the story mm. and keep that message alive as well mm. so even with this and like you pointed out as well uh the fact that women did not have id cards in fata because yeah. this is pre 2018 pre merger and that is also why there's a lot of attack coming from militant factions to demerge mm. because now once you have this constitutional backing for an entire area you will have more political representation in the parliament like we saw as well right, like right. an increase in seats an increase in uh, female candidates and all an increase in female voters coming in as mm-hmm. well even how little it is even if it's like below 9% which is the minimum requirement 9% to have like a female vote for any uh, voter to be eligible for any sorry political representative who has won the election to be eligible so that is still there yeah and like i said before this kind of process then does naturally create a sort of political consciousness and consciousness raising called quite organically mm. because the most things that you hear from camp communities of women's groups who are talking together is that they don't want their daughters to have the same future yeah. as they as their past now they want their daughters to have an education they want their daughters to go out there and that is sort of uh, something that we saw in the pashtun tahaffuz movement as well mm. that when they were talking about landmines in that area that was set yeah. by the military that is also another aspect of afterlives mm. that now that the operation has happened and now that you have packed up and you believe that everything is hunky dory you are repatriating people but you're not really cleaning out the area with the landmines that you filled yeah and it was so yeah. interesting reading that as one of yeah. you know the points that they were making mm-hmm. because it has been so discredited and delegitimized <laughs> and in some ways those criticisms are valid and yeah. in some ways they are not uh but it was interesting to be to read that they were like please demine the area mm. you have left their minds after and mm. it needs to be demined and mm. it's like that is a, for me that's a very simple request that yeah. should be acceded to especially when you see the effects that minds can have on yeah, on course. individuals and on mm. children um but yeah it, it is it's really interesting how the narrativization of these women takes place and mm. how the narrativization of people in fata and especially i remember reading um articles after the elections that happened mm-hmm. where women in fata were being spoken to and they were saying yeah. that actually we were taken in buses like mm-hmm. by the truckload to the yeah. election um a voting booth and we mm-hmm. were told go and you know stamp on this yeah. for this person and we were told who to vote for yeah. and i'm like that's fine for now <laughs> because you know maybe by the next time or the next time exactly. or the next time you know 10 generations down yeah. we won't have that kind of stuff happening yeah. anymore yeah. um it's really interesting because i feel like I'm I feel very bogged down in the UK and the US from this movement <laughs> yeah. anyway. Yeah. And so when I hear about the whole remove like you know they've been moved out of a joint family mm. uh structure and you know they don't have their mother-in-law and their yeah. brother-in-law you know controlling their movements um what ends up happening is that they live a much happier life mm. and what we have seen in the west is like a complete atomization and the individualization of people yeah. and family units and that nuclear family unit people mm. are now questioning being like oh but this wasn't really mm. we threw the baby out with the bathwater it's not actually the ideal yeah. uh way of raising a family or living together yeah. and i'm like how we're, we're right there right now here and mm. i've seen we've seen it come to this point mm. and we're worried about it but then i wonder 
they know what's best for them as hmm. well. Like there is that concept of agency. If this is what they want, oh. or maybe they'll go off in their own path on their own way. Um, and that even sounds very paternalistic even when I put it like that. <laughs> but it, it's just interesting to see the debate from totally the other side, which is something that we, mm. we have in the feminist movement, of and course. then also seeing it play out mm. right at the beginning. Mm. No, that's actually fair, because like I was criticizing white feminism in the beginning yeah, as well. Yeah. That is something that now we have been made aware of, and yeah. especially for urban feminists in the global south. This has been like sort of an awakening as well, because yeah, we totally. always have felt like that given our education or given our exposure to the West or also because we like we have been brought up on Western media as well. Yeah, yeah. We believe that these are neutral goods that need mm. to be adopted and taken in. But like I was giving the example of Bloch feminists and Al-Pashtun feminists as well. Uh, and again, like what, what you said before as well, like especially right in the beginning when you had uh, people like Audre Lorde and Bell Hooks coming yeah. in in the African-American feminist yeah. space. That was the whole point that we cannot let go of our men because yes. we as a community yeah. has been subjugated. Mm. And similarly, when the Pakistan movement was happening in the 40s, mm. there was this expectation from the women's caucus or the women's organizations to actually work with the women from the Congress mm. because they wanted like a better India for all women. Right, and this right. was actually seen as divisive to be a part of the Pakistan Muslim League oh, because, okay. uh, you know, it was mm. like your solidarity first is with your gender or with mm. your ethnic or religious community and that is a choice that many women had to make at that point of time that oh because we as an entire class or category of people are being subjugated our first allegiance is towards the Pakistan movement yeah. and that's how that division came into being as well and that is how you had two representat representatives one Hindu woman and one Muslim woman at the round table conference as well because one woman okay. could not have represented mm. all of India's uh, mm. women as well. So this is a fight or this is a conflict or, you know, a, a, a matter of division that has always been there, historically speaking. And even now, I feel like that is why an ethnographic research is very important so yeah. that the, the women's voices can be made like center. Mm. And I think this is sort of the le sort of a lens that we can also borrow from Sabah Mahmood, who is a Pakistani yeah. anthropologist. And she worked at the during the Egyptian uh, Islamic revivalist mm. movement. especially the mosque movement. And her in entire idea was that agency should not be seen as resistance mm. to any sort of hierarchy, to any sort of structure of power or hegemony of power, but actually should be seen as agency equal to capacity for action. And that is also something like you mentioned right. before the UN with Amartya yeah. Sen's entire mm. new economics and whatnot, human happiness index is coming in as well. That is agency, your right to resist and dissent mm. constantly and fight and be exhausted by those fights? Yeah. Or is it actually your capacity to take action and better your life and enjoy mm. a culture that is malleable and adaptable and changeable as well? And that is the biggest problem with erstwhile Fata that because there has been such a long, more than 100 years of colonial legacy by this one document that has controlled and legitimized misogynistic mm. practices, patriarchal practices, that... It's going to take a lot of time to undo all of those things yeah, as well. Yeah. It's going to take a lot of time to realize what is good for that particular area and not. But as, you know, again, going back to the first point, those we, we A, cannot standardize feminism because now we have reached a point where a multiplicity of ideas is very, very necessary yeah. and needs to be tolerated and even celebrated. Yeah, and it's really interesting when I'm in these conversations in yeah. Lahore because I'm like... 
the way Punjabi women view feminism, mm. I find it to be quite a imported Western concepts of yeah. feminism. And when whenever I see how it plays out in a KP context, mm. um, I often joke that if my papoods were in a derga, the sentences for women would be far harsher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're yeah. like archetypical, like conservative yeah. KP woman. Um, but also what I, what I, and this is purely anecdotal, mm-hmm. like, you know, just what I perceive from conversations here is mm. that Punjabi women actually have a lot more freedom mm. and autonomy than women in other provinces in Pakistan, mm. is what I've seen. Mm. And yet at the same time, they're the ones who um, villainize men the most, mm. which I find very interesting because in KP, I don't see that same, same vilification. Mm-hmm. And actually they see men more, equally to them as victims of the patriarchy mm. and even I was reading a report about women in Fatah and they were all like my husband's fine my mother-in-law is horrible <laughs> and it's very much a concept of actually I I wish that my husband was free mm. of all of this stuff mm. of all of the baggage that that he carries with him and yeah. I, I feel like it is a very much not conflictual model mm. and mm. I wonder whether that's because it is so much more um less urban yeah actually because i feel mm. like maybe that's the main difference from lahori dominated punjabi feminism compared to what you find in a more mm. rural kp mm. or balochistan mm. no that's actually uh sort of a fair analysis as well because i think again we should not think of feminism in binary terms as well see it's it's almost like uh, you must have read this piece by wendy brown suffering from the paradoxes of rights. I've read her yeah. liberal. Exactly. I actually yeah, really yeah. like Wendy yeah. Brown. So I this, think she's amazing. Yeah, exactly. So this whole idea of paradoxes of rights, even stating, for example, that women are seen as a weaker class kind of discursively produces women to be mm. weaker as well. Right. So similarly in this as well, if we constantly keep on saying that feminism is only for women and that it's only... Yeah. All yeah. women are homogenous and they are like completely pichari is also kind of saying that, you know, uh, uh, Talpare Mohanty's idea of the uh, third world woman right. who is homogenous. And as we know, yeah. I think we're the biggest examples of that fact that yeah. the third world yeah. woman is so far from being homogenous yeah. because um, women like us who live in urban centers and, have, and speak like this and have this exposure yeah. and women in rural spaces, we have so much diversity. And I really like yeah. that you said that because yeah. I feel like people don't acknowledge that enough here yeah. because they, they almost believe that because there are so few women out there hmm. they have the right to speak for women yeah and it's like i'm I, i'm like more people should put their hand up and be like i hmm. have no idea what it's like to hmm. be a rural woman i actually my interaction with them is so limited yeah. i barely know what their issues are i know yeah. what my own issues are as like you know a, an educated woman hmm. living in living with a you know, high degree of privilege yeah, yeah. in an urban area. Mm. Um, and the fact that I can be like, oh, Pakistani women need this. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know. I know what I need. Yeah. <laughs> but I have no idea what they need. Of course. And see, that is why I was saying that we need to do this sort of research because we've also yeah. uh, simultaneously produced, just like the West has produced a third world woman as a homogenous mm. category, as a monolith. Similarly, we have also produced the rural woman as a monolith where yes. we say, oh, thank, yeah. you should thank God that you're not born in those areas. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah, yeah, you yeah. wouldn't have had any rights. But yeah. it's so fascinating to me because this entire idea of middle class morality and the privilege of being mm. moral is so situated in urban spaces. Mm. Whereas actually, I feel like in rural spaces or in spaces that are slightly peripheral, you have more autonomy and more space oh, to grow as well. Because okay. there, there is... 
because there's always uh, this very good idea that there is more to win and less to lose. Oh, Whereas we already have a lot, okay, and we wouldn't yeah, want yeah. to, you know, we wouldn't want to stick our necks and go to jail mm-hmm. for something. Mm-hmm. I don't think anyone at a protest would be like, oh yeah, yeah, let's go to jail. Right, right. But right. when you yeah. kind of see uh, peripheral movements like the Sindhiani Tariq. which happened in Sindh okay. or you actually see the Okara farmers movement right, right. you see that women are much more because they have to because mm. there's so much to gain and so less to lose as well at that point mm. of time and especially, and especially with Pashtun women as well uh, we cannot criminalize a culture just the, because it has been produced in a certain way and that is why having that decolonizing lens or that lens of the colonial process is very important because this is hundreds of years of management or what things are supposed to be and not supposed to be. And like you pointed out, we have to understand that there might be many men who are allies, good yeah. allies, and women who might be, because of the patriarchal bargain, are actually exuding patriarchy or sexism or even mm. misogyny as well. Yeah. And obviously, especially in such spaces where women already have suffered through so much and finally at an older age, like you gave the exam- yes. example of the mother-in-law, yeah. Yeah. finally at that older age, especially in religious context as well, when yeah. you're like uh, post-menopause, you have this power because now you are beyond being sexualized in any sense and of the way. And it's so interesting to look yeah. at that in comparison to the West. Because exactly. in the West, women, everyone loses power as they age yeah. and you go into an irrelevant status. Yeah. Yeah. And when you look at it in the Eastern context, these women matriarchs have so much power. They dictate yeah. and they rule their fiefdoms than I am. Because they finally <laughs> reached yes. that point. I mean, yeah. I always make this joke that it's my dream to be a Lahori auntie. <laughs> because I think the kind of power and autonomy yeah, unquestionably yeah. so a woman enjoys after yeah. 50 in yeah. our spaces is just completely you know and it's unparalleled it's unparalleled in the west you don't have that you know like i mean men become irrelevant yeah. but so do women yeah. and probably far earlier than men exactly. um and yeah I, i find it really interesting mm. and I, i don't know if you've read afia zia you probably of have course. <laughs> <laughs> and her takedown is But I really liked what Sabah Mahmood was saying oh. about, you know, stop looking at these people as poor brown women. Exactly. Like I've, I've had enough of that. And also that, and I, I like that you actually started with it from an Islamic perspective, oh. because I'm like, I actually think that the biggest um, thing that comes between urban and rural women oh. is the role that Islam plays hmm. or the role that culture plays. And actually like being urban, being privileged kind of gives you the the right to like opt out hmm. from all of those things. Whereas hmm. like for um, a rural woman yeah. or like, you know, someone not so privileged, that's something that she can't opt out hmm. from. And actually something that can be leveraged in a way to get power, the way we're yeah. talking about the matriarch, yeah. that power comes from Islam, yeah. right? Because yeah. as my mother loves to remind me yeah. all the time, yeah. you know, heaven lies under a mother's oh, feet. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. it's like that the leveraging mm. of religion is something that you, can't, you mm. can't engage with if you completely take that out of the conversation. Mm. Mm. Exactly. And also, interestingly, kind of going back to the idea of Pashtunwari, which is the code yeah. of conduct, again, people kind of synonymize those practices with Islam, mm. but even though they have actually been a part of the region right. before any conscious uh, 
efforts to Islamize or radicalize yeah, those regions yeah. as well. That radicalization, I mean, Ismat Shah Jahan, who actually runs Women Democratic mm. Front, was actually a very popular Pashtun feminist and political worker mm. as well. She always says that it is actually the Arabization okay. of Northwestern mm. Pakistan that has led to religious extremism. Right, because right. these uh, principles of hospitality, of actually honor, all of these different you know aspects that Pashtun Wali holds, mm. it's a very cultural... code of conduct that ties different tribes together yeah, so yeah, yeah. a i think we make the mistake of synonymizing those cultural practices with religion and mm-hmm. then also kind of seeing it through the lens of radicalized religion in itself yeah, which obviously yeah. is something that doesn't serve a good purpose to anyone and then secondly like you said of course because when you have um, actually even in urban centers especially you might remember early 2000s when we had the whole dars revival movement and especially you know this is actually post musharraf and um, post 9-11 because mm, obviously now right. that you know Islamic yeah. identity has become a whole different political yeah. group as well yeah. a persecuted political group yeah. quite internationally so there was this entire thus revival movement happening especially in feminist or women's circles mm. in urban centers like Park, uh, like Lahore, Karachi where women would come together in the name of you know doing a thus listening to a lady okay. who is senior and kind of you know coming together and mm. talking about things and mm. interestingly Sindhyani Tariq also did that that in the name of uh, saying that oh we're all gathering for dars they would actually read Marxian literature and oh, socialist literature exactly okay. because you know wow. obviously if you tell someone that you're going for dars no one's going to stop you <laughs> no patriarch is going to be like no you're not going and you're like Bita, okay, okay. so this way of navigating mm. and also making space is something that Sabah Mahmood was trying to do as well and yeah. that's why I really enjoy her work because whatever she said then yeah. uh, which is obviously not that far ago but at least two decades or one decade ago is now being seen as an actual attack on white feminism mm. that has been quite celebrated by not yeah. just South Asian feminists by, but like you know Latin American feminists, uh, feminists from the global south be it East Asian any and all and even African American women as well yeah. so I think that that's why we really need to create this idea that there can be a multiplicity Of yes. feminisms yeah, as well, yeah. and obviously, if someone seeks respite or comfort in religion, that's a different thing. Because yeah. at the end of the day, I actually feel like it's a. Um, I I don't want to sound very pessimistic, but it's very difficult to separate any sort of politics from religion in a country like Pakistan. Yes. Yeah. So that kind of instrumentalization of a religious narrative, yes, it has its cons. Yes, obviously, it's not sustainable mm. at all. But if it is leading women to create some sort of space or public representation mm. from them for themselves, then I don't really blame them for doing that. Yeah, and also for understanding uh, areas like erstwhile Fata as well. Unfortunately, the problems are so, or might be seen as rudimentary to us, like about working, getting an education, going to school. Because like you pointed out before, like, uh, the Taliban's uh, new strategy or old strategy actually every like every season strategy is to ab- abolish women's education yeah girls yeah. education that is the first thing that is done and that really makes you question and obviously you, you should question that as well that what do the women think there yeah. do they think this yeah, is yeah, a yeah. good thing or do mm. they actually feel like their dreams are being squashed as mm. well so this kind of a disruption that has been caused by forced displacement has really led to this kind of awakening where women have actually seen cities like Peshawar and be like, oh, this is what really happens in mm. Pakistan. Like you actually can, you know, go about and go to the market and do your business and things of that sort. And also the kind of uh, biases that women themselves in their own groups have had to face. Because obviously many women from Aswal Fata wear that Afghan 
uh, blue burqa, which right. has the little net hair. Mm-hmm. And that is something that is not common in more urban spaces in Pakistan mm-hmm. or cities in Pakistan. So there were accounts of where these women were made fun of mm-hmm. for wearing that. So then again, you know, there are a lot of battlefields yeah. to fight. But again, kind of creating a monolith is something that is problematic. And also seeing that our feminism should reflect their demands and needs is also something that is not sustainable, yeah. so to say. And that's why yeah. you actually have to be on ground and do that. And Definitely, the biggest actually, problem yeah. for my research is being on ground yeah. because it is constantly like um, uh, people who actually work in those regions as well, they would always discourage you to go, mm. to go to those areas and be like, oh, maybe it's not safe. No one will talk to you, even if they do. It's just like constant barriers as well. especially with the displacement as well it was as we all know mostly the military uh, that runs the community camps as well that runs the uh, aid transference of aid coming in as well and also something that i wanted to talk about was this idea that idps in itself internally displaced persons are a lesser category than refugee yeah. because a refugee yeah. crosses the border mm-hmm. and then is you know at the behest of the new state whereas yeah. an idp is displaced within their own country so therefore no other international intervention yes. can be made because of yeah. international laws but then pakistani government actually tried to label them as tdps temporarily displaced mm-hmm. persons which actually then further lessens <coughs> bless you further lessens their mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, sort of international security rhetoric as well mm-hmm. where organizations like unhcr or other organizations dedicated to this cannot do anything because it's a yeah. temporary problem yeah. right so you know semantics really matter And in this politics of acronyms, yeah. we sort of lose the human face of mm. war and conflict as well. Yeah, and even even with the refugees, um, yeah. we've seen that the same kind of policy that they've adopted towards IDPs has been adopted there, which is voluntary yeah. repatriation. And we have no idea how voluntary that repatriation yeah, really is. Of course. Um, I think, was it Sabah Mahmood who talked about burqas and talked about how they actually offered mobility within yeah, the confines extent. of Burda? And yeah. it kind of made me totally look at burqas in a completely yeah. different way because it's like actually these these women who were you know confined to their homes yeah. now finally had a way of like taking that part that with them and moving mm. out and about and they could go wherever they wanted yeah. uh, and how revolutionary that was for them and mm. I was just like okay that that's a really impressive way of mm. looking at it and also in terms of the way we talk about Fata when it comes to jirgas And it's like when we look at our court system, an mm. average case in our court system takes 25 years mm. to be resolved. And that for me is absolutely crazy. Yeah. And yet you have jirgas which they kind of, you know, offer alternative dispute resolutions. You can have speedy justice, you can have quick justice, and it has is based on community mm. principles. Mm. And kind of trying to improve that rather yeah. than... You know, looking at the deficiencies within that and being like, okay, how do we get rid of this? How can mm. we ensure the participation of women? How can we ensure that exactly. there aren't harsh and unfair punishment? Yeah. And how can we ensure an appeals process? But at the same time, not being like, oh, you should be within Pakistan's judicial system mm. because we've known that that doesn't really work very well at all. Mm. And actually, what people are doing, even in you know urban centers, is being like, let's shift towards arbitrations. Mm, yeah. You will get justice quicker. We'll get a you know mm. we'll get a pronouncement quicker. Mm. Um, But all of these things are, like you said, something that you can only do when you have anthropologists, on mm-hmm. sociologists on the ground, yeah. talking to these people, asking these questions, and doing so without the prejudice or bias mm-hmm. that I think we sometimes see with Westerners when, you know, every time you open the New York Times, it's like mm-hmm. the picture is always of these people in burqas, dark yeah. room, and, you know, the it's like... 
they're everything is hopeless mm. there's despair yeah. and all of that kind of stuff and it's like there are a lot of women who support the Taliban yeah. there are a lot of women who support these Islamic movements mm. and we never hear from them so who are mm. we not hearing from and why and who can we hear from and how can we get that to happen mm. I feel like uh I think obviously as a lawyer you would know more about the judicial systems as well but again I would say that it's it's a double-edged sword right yeah like a we cannot yeah. romanticize these structures of power and then B you're absolutely correct that even that is why the merger is very critical and yeah. that is why unfortunately there is such scant data on the merger right now mm. as well I mean 2018 was not yesterday yeah. it's been years and yet yeah. it is so slow the kind of progress and you cannot really get the information unless you know someone working in the KP government they would be like oh yeah we're working on like youth assemblies and things mm. like very you know superficial sort of things um, and then and then like now CPEC has been stopped as well so all of these things are quite in the air because of yeah. our very terrible and volatile political climate right now yeah. but the problem is that even if you have done the merger right now you're still not really deciding upon how to do things mm. and that is why political representatives like for example Mohsen Dawar in the NA is very important but then There's only so much one person can do mm. because then you actually imprisoned the other elected representative who was coming from that area as well. So it's sort of very um, heartbreaking that whatever yeah. we could have seen coming from the merger because it's been four years and usually when such mergers happen, it's like a five-year plan, then a 10-year plan, then a 15-year plan, but like it's almost five years and we don't really see anything right, that has happened. Right. And we're actually back to square one, mm. where we're still discussing if it can be demerged, if that's even a term, yeah. so yeah. to say. So that's quite ridiculous mm. to me, uh, to be honest. And again, because the merger has not been mainstreamed, there is still this sense of insecurity from the, those right, areas. And right. again, with the Taliban coming in, and now we see protests happening in Waziristan as well mm. about this. Now we do feel like Like that there is some sort of a resistance happening mm. and also I would say the biggest role that is being played is being played by the internet like one of the biggest tools that the PTM initially used when they were very active now they're not uh, was the internet making mm. videos actually you know going to international representations in Germany international chapters in the UK and Germany and kind of you know making videos mm. and being prominent there but that's the thing even in that kind of mobilization women lose out because most women I mean the digital divide is very real in Pakistan most women do not have 4G yeah. internet yeah. or phones with internet in them but then again I think the problem is that what we're not hearing from is actually all the women in Fata mm. because right now we don't we only have like UN funded or other funded reports which like I said before very clinical mm. and even then we have found so much from those reports but then again we do not have a human narrative coming in from those right. places yeah. uh, like you mentioned Malala Malala is also there because she escaped yeah so yeah, that's yeah. like the biggest mm. feat, feat that we attribute to Malala yeah. that she managed to run away and that she managed to like secure her life abroad and similarly even in urban centers If you watch uh, or if you uh, look into education reports by Nadia Naviwala, there is this idea that the, the elite interest in education is not there because everyone dreams to go abroad mm. and everyone dreams to like move away and never come back. Yes, so yeah. that is why there is disinterest in elite yeah. structures where you can actually influence education, mm. influence these structures. So what we have is actually an elite disinterest in stories coming from Fata because mm. we already have labeled women as conservative. women right, as need right. to be saved and rescued yeah. and women actually seen as women who are beyond safety and rescue as well because we feel like that this this is another concept by another sociologist uh, Uma Narayan which um, and she calls it death by culture 
and obviously when you try to hear about sexual violence in the west you think of it as an exceptional one-off event mm-hmm. but when you hear of sexual violence in south asia you say oh this is because of their culture this is yeah. part of their culture yeah. misogyny yeah. is part of their culture mm-hmm. similarly we have treated Pashtunwali, we have treated these code of conducts because they have been legalized mm. in a very colonized way, in a very specific biased, prejudiced way. We feel like this is another incident of death by culture where women are all passive, all homogenous, have no agency where they can choose between certain groups and sects and therefore they're actually beyond rescue or in, re, not even rescue beyond un, presenting a narrative like who are we yeah, to rescue them yeah. I think and that's another whole problem to begin with yeah it was really interesting because I was reading about this in Canada because uh-huh. they tried to impose a law about honor killings mm-hmm. and so the idea was that you know if a man kills his life out of honor we should have this 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 sentence and it should be categorized as such mm-hmm. and everyone kind of sat there and they were like okay so this is kind of what you're saying that brown canadians do is yeah. honor killings whereas like a man coming home finding out a white canadian man coming home finding out yeah. his wife is having an affair and then he kills her mm. that is just murder yeah what is the difference between murder and an honor killing and it is all entirely cultural yeah. um and even trying to get that out of our lexicon because mm. i'm like It is not your motives never determine the category mm. of the offense, right? Mm. Like why you're killing someone doesn't really matter. So why yeah. does it matter when it's honor killings? Mm. Why is that way worse? Mm. Um, and who does that affect the most? It's not yeah. affecting everyone in the same yeah. way. Um, but this has been such an interesting discussion. Thank you so much for coming on our <laughs> podcast. No, thank you. I, I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I really hope people learn more about these issues. Yeah. Well, thank it you so really much. It was really nice talking about it from a very feminist perspective. Yeah, great. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in. and we hope you tune in for future episodes as well.